Hello, and welcome to Homegrown KC, a podcast dedicated to exploring Kansas City's fascinating history and sharing stories from its rich past. I'm your host, Laura. Join me today as we explore a piece of Kansas City's history. Hello listeners, welcome back. It's April and it's been a month. The weather finally got drier and warmer, yay. And we were finally, after several months, able to plant fruit trees and bushes at the community garden, double yay. Also, uh, speaking of fruit and trees, um, I'm recording this on Earth Day 2023. Never seemed like a big deal when I was growing up, but now that I'm older, I think it's a very big deal, especially amidst our fight against drastic and radically dangerous massive climate change. So there's that. But, you know, there's also been multiple mass and public shootings across America this month. I mean, I think for the year we're already at over 100. You don't hear about every single one because a mass shooting is considered any shooting that... um, injures or kills four people or more, but, you know, we hear about enough of them, and um, we had one in KC about a week ago. It's, it's so frustrating and upsetting to hear about shootings anywhere, but especially even more so in your own community, um, and I don't know, this is something I've not been able to get off my mind. I've just got a, a lot of emotions that I'm feeling. I know I'm not the only one. Um, Incredibly, Ralph, the 16-year-old kid who was shot, who was not killed, somehow he managed to walk slash crawl away and seek help. The report I read said that he actually knocked on like three different doors before he got help. So y'all that didn't answer, you had better be out of town, is all I can say. Um, But, you know, good news, miraculously, somehow he lived. Went to the hospital. He was sent home a few days ago, which um, is just incredible to me. Uh, his aunt started a GoFundMe and um, raised over one and a half million dollars. Um, I know that a lot of that was from our community, which is awesome. It's been really great to see how our community has rallied around behind Ralph and his family. Um, but I know that a lot of those donations also came from other people across America. So on Ralph's behalf, on behalf of my community, thank you. Um, Ralph, I hope you and your family continue to heal and hope you get the justice you deserve. All right. Sorry, like I said, I just haven't been able to let go of that. Um, thank you for listening in. This is the start of Series 7, and since none of y'all had any suggestions for a cool name... And I really couldn't think of anything that seemed to fit. Our series title is simply Amusement Parks. No, it's a little bit of a letdown. Um, The name itself doesn't sound super exciting. At least not to me. I don't know. I was really hoping for something really catchy. Um, But lucky for y'all, lucky for me, the subject matter is really pretty cool. So this is topic one, Electric Park. Let's dive in. We are going back to the early 1900s. I spent a lot of time discussing elements of the early 20th century, 
If you don't like it, suck it up, buttercup. This is the good time of period. No, I can't say that. This is a very interesting period in history. Um, today we are specifically going back to May 19th, 1907, to the opening day of Electric Park. 53,000 Kansas Cityans ventured forth to visit this new and exciting, spectacular thing in Kansas City. It was owned by Heim Brewing Company. The park was run entirely on electricity and had, um, supposedly, 100,000 light bulbs. This is a BFD because the light bulb, um, you know, 30-ish years at this point, give or take, if you want to listen to me rant about, quote, the invention of the light bulb, uh, you can listen to my episode on Plaza Lights. So, yeah, entirely run on electricity, 100,000 light bulbs, really, really big deal. There was, quote, a roller coaster, scenic railway, carousel, skating rink, swimming pool, which was called a natatorium, bowling alley, alligator farm, dime museum, theaters, dance pavilions, bandstand, penny arcade, shooting gallery, flower beds, a lake, and rental boats. Most alluring were the nightly performances of costume young women who danced to a colorful electric light show on a platform on a large fountain in the center of the lake. The park, sometimes known as Kansas City's Coney Island, continued to serve the city's greatest amusement park for nearly two decades. End quote. Whew, that is a lot, right? That is a lot for an amusement park to have. Let's break some of that down. So Electric Park was often called Kansas City's Coney Island, as seen in that um, quote. Also often called the Great White City of Bush Creek. It was located between 47th, which is uh, Emanuel Cleaver Boulevard, and 45th, and the Paseo, which one of my sources said at the time it was actually known as Lydia Street. And I was like, whoa, I've never come across it being called anything but the Paseo. So I super need to look that up. Uh, and then the fourth street was Woodland Avenue. Today it's um, an area of apartments and the Gates Corporate HQ. It's only a few blocks east of Kaufman Gardens, if uh, that helps you get an idea of the area better. It's actually the second electric park. This is Electric Park 2.0. The first park was located at, probably not going to say this right, Gwinnott? Nope, did not say that right. That doesn't sound right. Um, G-U-I-N-O-T-T-E. Avenue and Charlotte Avenue in the East Bottoms. So uh, the two parks, the two electric parks had a lot in common. They offered a lot of the same entertainment. And okay, what's this thing that I mention a lot in history? Black and white folks were separated because their skin was different colors and people are idiots. Oh yeah. Segregation. It's early 1900s. Both parks were 100% segregated. As I said a moment ago, the park was owned, first park as well, by Heim Brewery, and their history is amazing. A big, big deal to Kansas City history. But I really want to vote an entire topic to them someday, so I'm not going to dive deep into the Heim family at the moment. But here's a brief background for you because you do need to know this. The Heim family immigrated to New York from Germany, and then they made their way to St. Louis. The Heim brothers, Ferd and Michael, had a very successful brewery in St. Louis. Mark Michael died, 
and Ferd moved to Kansas City, bought an older brewery, and renamed it all in 1884. And this is the start of an even more successful brewery. Ferd Sr. has three sons, Joseph James, a.k.a. J.J., Ferd Jr., and Michael. In 1899, the boys decide the brewery needs more patrons, so they pay to have a streetcar built from City Market to the brewery in the East Bottoms. Because of the way the roads are today, it feels farther away than it actually is. It's actually just a couple of miles. Super expensive, but it's a bust. It doesn't work. Cue Brother Michael. Enter stage right. Wave the people. Hey, I have a brilliant idea, he tells them. No, Mike. We don't want to hear any more about your stupid ideas, they tell him. And I'm totally making this up because I have no idea how the conversation actually took place. But Michael is the baby of the family, so I 100% see his brothers treating him this way. Anyways, hey, remember that trip that I took to New York a few years ago? They have this thing called Coney Island. It's an amusement park. We should totally build an amusement park and bring in patrons. Hey, Mikey, that's actually a great idea for once. Again, totally fake. Nobody had this went down. But the brothers like this idea. They build a electric park and they open it in 1900. And this is the one over in the East Bottoms. So the original EP is 12 or 15 acres, depending on the source. It had a German-style Biedergarten, of course. Um, they actually built a pipe that ran from the brewery straight to the park. And there were, quote, Picnic tables and bandstands, bathing facilities, boats and rides were available. A vaudeville and light opera theater seated 2,800. End quote. It was so popular that it's estimated around 20,000 people a day visited Electric Park. Quote, they added new attractions every year, building up their small acreage to include a Ferris wheel, a roller coaster, a Japanese tea garden, an alligator farm, and a dancing pavilion. At night, the park was lit with thousands of lights, end quote. They even added monkey cages in 1905, so it's like an early version of a zoo as well. Okay, goal. Get people to visit the brewery. How? Build an amusement park. Why? To sell beer and make money. Check, check, check. Success. They're doing really well. And it sounds pretty cool. I mean, Japanese tea garden, roller coaster. Not sure about that alligator farm, though. According to one of my sources, in 1904, Herm was actually stabbed by an employee, believe it or not, um, at the park. He was drunk. And Mike and Joe, or um, at least this this one article called him Joe. And I was like, why did – that's a little weird. Everyone else at least calls him Joseph or JJ. Um, but it said Mike – and Joe also were injured when they tried to wrest the knife away from the assailant. But um, anyways, it's the East Bottoms. So just like its counterpart, the West Bottoms, it's very prone to flooding. In 1903, there's a huge flood. I've talked about that in my... Uh, that was all the way back in Series 1. Um, and now I'm totally blanking on the name... Stockyards. Stockyards part one. We talked about this. Um, huge flood. East Bottoms and West Bottoms. The park is super flooded and there's a lot of damage. So I'm thinking 
with it being so popular, they're like, you know what, we kind of need to move. And then this flood happens, and they're like, we definitely need to move to a new location. So in 1907, they built the second park at Paseo. It's 27 or 29 acres, again, depending on which source you're looking at. So it's twice the size or a little bit more as the original. And at the time, it's built on the outskirts of the city. According to Delights of Decades Past Electric Park, an article from The Independent, before the Heim brothers built Electric Park in this location, it was actually home to the Kansas City Driving Club, which, despite its name, has nothing to do with cars, but instead horses, specifically horse races. The landscape was designed by the one, the only, nationally famous George Kessler. Longtime listeners and native Kansas Cityans will remember him as the Parks Guy. He was Team City Beautiful, which is a concept I discussed in my Treasures of Kansas City series. And he's nationally known, but especially known in Kansas City, because he designed the parks and boulevard system in our city. He's a BFD. Someday I hope to do a deep dive on his life. The buildings were designed by J.H. Martling. Now, I found a few reports of architectural buildings and surveys in KCMO and KCK where Martling was named as architect for different buildings, but I didn't find any online biographical information on him. So, I know, off chance any of you know, hit me up. Otherwise, I'm really interested in who this guy is that I could find no information on. One of my sources stated that Michael managed the park. In fact, he had his mansion built right next to it on Benton Boulevard so that he could be near it or some of my source claims. The source, which was an article in the Martin City Telegraph, did include a picture of his house and apparently it's still there and it's actually really beautiful. Now, the main entrance was at 46th and Paseo. It cost five cents to park and 10 cents to get in. No beer was served at the second park because the city refused to grant them a license in order to sell it, but they did sell popcorn, hot dogs, peanuts, and ice cream. A glass of water cost a penny. If you didn't want to buy food, that's totally cool. You could bring your own picnic basket. There was a Ferris wheel. You could go for a boat ride in the lake. And there was, quote, a miniature railway track that ran a complete circle around the park. The train operated only in the evening, end quote. The article in The Independent had another beautiful description that I want to read for you. Quote, The covered promenade stretching its light-gemmed length around the park and ending in huge towers blazing with lights against the sky is most impressive. It is not difficult to believe there are 100,000 electric lights in the park. End quote. According to rcbd.com, which is an online database of roller coasters around the world, this is a very cool find, Electric Park had five roller coasters. All five were wooden and you had to sit. There was the Ben-Hur roller coaster built in 1913, the Dip Coaster, which opened in 1907, the Great Dipper, which cost $300,000 to build and opened in 1922, the Scenic Railway, which also debuted in 1907, and the Tickler, which is a, or sorry, was a Virginia wheel, ran from 1907 to 1909. So this was really interesting. Turns out there are actually different types of roller coasters, like specific, officially designated types. So a Virginia wheel, which was invented by Elmer Reel, um, and that's spelled R-I-E-H-L, um, he invented it 
at Coney Island in the early 1900s. He named it for his daughter, Virginia. It featured spinning tubes that ran down a zigzag on a track, like from the top down. There was also a giant swing, which debuted in 1907. However, it collapsed in the first year and injured eight people and was never rebuilt. Not listed in our CBD, but I did find a postcard on historichistory.wordpress.com, which showed the Mystic Shuttle, which was a water-based roller coaster. The same website also had a poster, um, sorry, postcard with Greyhound Racer roller coaster listed in the caption. All the way back to the beginning, I want to revisit this initial um, initial description of the park. Quote, most alluring were the nightly performances of costume young women who danced to a colorful electric light show on a platform on a large fountain in the center of the lake. End quote. So about this nightly show, I found more information on this thing than anything else, but it sounds pretty cool. Another source said, quote, the owners installed a $70,000 fountain in the link with a device that elevated a pedestal out of the water, bringing the classic group up from the fountain's base, actually the women's dressing room. Of course, not a drop of water touched the women, but it appeared otherwise viewed through the high encircling fountain spray. After several breathtaking moments with the colored lights playing on the immobile group, the entire scene sank out of sight only to reappear with new groupings in color. Living statuary was rivaled only by the fireworks, which were also a free nightly feature, which shot high over the waters of the lake with bursting showers of intricate color and design. End quote. So for this nightly show, there's four girls in each show. They're paid $25 a night. Sounds like a lot of money, uh, honestly, especially at that time. You know, they're in their little changing room under the lake. And through amazing mechanics, they're like raised up onto the platform, pose, look gorgeous for a few minutes, lowered back down. A few months later, new group, new pose. Okay, that's what's going on here. And again, through amazing mechanics, they're never getting wet, even though they're coming up out of the lake. I'm not sure how that works. But it gets better. Quote, from mid-August until the second week of September, when the park closed, Heim offered an extra attraction, the Mardi Gras. Real quick, not sure why we're celebrating Mardi Gras in late summer instead of spring, but whatever. Okay. Queen Electra, waving her wand to 400 costume attendants, opened the show by pressing a button which turned on the 100,000 electric lights. Eight orchestras and bands in various parts of the park played for continuous parade dancing. The parade of 16 magnificent floats moved slowly along the boundaries of the park, each one with a special theme and queen, end quote. KCHistory.org has an article all about Pearl Goals, I hope I'm saying your name right, G-O-E-L-Z, a.k.a. Pearl Gale. She was Queen Electra for nine years in a row, approximately 1916 to 1925. According to Ms. Pearl, this nightly show began promptly at 9 p.m. and ended at 9.15, and the girls always had bougie-ass costumes made of silk or chaffron and designed by, quote, Mrs. Lillian Larkin, 
who planned, executed, and directed the nightly spectacle. She served as wardrobe mistress at the Schubert Theater during the winter months, end quote. Ms. Pearl told reporters that one year her dress and cape cost $3,000 alone. So, we have um, a dance pavilion, we have a theater, we have vaudeville and bands, other performers, not burlesque, burlesque is for inside, but vaudeville's okay, that's family friendly, taking place in this theater, in these dance pavilions, etc. The bandstand seated 10,000 people. One performer was Eugenia Dennis, who was a psychic from Atchison, Kansas. John Philip Sousa, a famous American composer, and his band also performed there at one time. And if you're like, hmm, that sounds familiar, he wrote the Star Spangled Banner. So, I know y'all know that one. You could swim in the lake, and in 1912, the swimming beach was, quote, reconstructed. I'm not sure what we mean by reconstructed, but okay. Uh, that's according to artsandculture.google. They also installed water slides in the 1920s and had diving boards by the 1920s. I'm not entirely sure what year those were added. However, I did look up and learn that the modern diving board was invented in 1916. So, probably late uh, 1910s, we got that. Honestly, I found several ending dates for Electric Park. Uh, it was kind of confusing at first. So, everyone agrees there's a small fire in 1920. And then most of my sources say the end came after a larger fire destroyed everything in May 1925. But there are others who are like, oh, there was a fire, yes, but it stayed open until a second large fire in 1934. And I was like, okay, somebody's date's got to be off, right? However, after all my research, it seems that it did manage to stay open in some sort of limited capacity after this first large fire in 25. Um, all of my sources were like, everything was destroyed. The only thing still standing was the beach and, I think, dance pavilion. I was like, well, of course the beach is standing. It's not a constructed uh, edifice. Um, and then I found this, quote, Later that year, 1934, two men who had worked closely with him, him being Michael, Gabe Kaufman and Fred Spear, tried to revive Electric Park but it was open only a short time prior to a fire that did significant damage. So, I'm sorry, end quote. So, yeah, seems like it stayed open in some capacity through the 1920s and into the 1930s, but then 1934, definitely dead. JJ died in 1927. Mike passed in January 1934. So, just before the actual end, final end. And Ferd died in September 1943. Green Village Apartments was built on this site in 1948. It's still there today. And um, I didn't mention this earlier, but did you know Walt Disney himself lived in Kansas City when he was a young boy? And he actually visited Electric Park when he was a young boy, and his memory of it inspired him to create Disney World in Orlando. Yep, that's right. 100% factual, not superstition, um, supposition or mythology. You are welcome, world. That is Kansas City's gift to you. And barbecue and jazz and Patrick Mahomes. 
2019, Casey Parks renamed Heim Park at Chestnut Trafficway and Martin Avenue, site of the original Electric Park, renamed it Heim's Electric Park. Lenexa also has an electric park at West 95th and Lorette. However, Lenexa's EP is not an amusement park. Um, it's just a green space. Ten acres includes shelter, restrooms, playgrounds, basketball court, horseshoes, um, sand volleyball, and a, a walking jogging trail and a community garden. So actually, it sounds like a really nice park. In 2021, Riger Distillery, owned by Andy Reid and Ryan Maybe, they bought Heim Brewery Bottling House in um, 2018. In 2021, they opened up a very cool backyard patio slash event space, and they named it Electric Park in honor of Electric Park. Y'all really should visit this newest Electric Park. It does not feature alligators, thank God. However, it does have fire pits, good food and good drinks. The distillery, which I visited, um, actually also 2021, um, I think it was October 2021, has a really good exhibit about brewery history in its lobby. And you can tour the facility. It's very affordable and very cool uh, tour. And you get to uh, sample some whiskey while you're there. That is all I have. Thank you for joining me today as we explore this piece of Kansas City's history. Join me next month for topic two of this series, Fairland Park. All right, sources. So, vertical files from Missouri Valley Special Collections, of course. KansasCityHistory.org, of course. An article from Martin Silly Telegraph. This has been a really good resource for me lately. Arts and Google, um, or, sorry, artsandculture.google.com, also a very good source. Casey Library's What's Your Q blog, PendergastKC.org, HistoricDisney.wordpress.com, which I mentioned briefly during this episode. It's a blog about Disney history, so it's very cool. Um, RCBD, which I also mentioned. It's an online database about amusement parks and roller coasters in the world. Very cool. And last but not least, the article in The Independent, which is Kansas City's Journal of Society. <laughs> so they have some interesting stuff there. Links. I actually do have a link for you for the first time in a long time. Defunct Land, which is a YouTube series that discusses the history of extinct theme parks and themed entertainment experiences. They also have a YouTube. Um, sorry, they also have a podcast. They have a video on YouTube about Electric Park. And this video is really good. It has so much detail, a ton of detail. Um... He doesn't cite his sources, and he spoke way too fast for me to keep track of all of it. But he includes a lot of information that I was not able to find elsewhere, so I didn't include it here. Um, a link to that video will be on my website. I hope you will consider becoming a financial supporter of the show. There are several ways you can do so. You can subscribe at patreon.com slash homegrownkc or redcircle.com slash homegrownkc. You could also give a one-time donation at redcircle.com slash homegrownkc or coffee.com slash homegrownkc. That's ko-fi.com. You can give as little or as much as you want, even as little as a dollar a month. Once you sign up, create an account, subscribe to the show, you'll be charged that day and then on the first of every following month. If you become a patron supporter, you get three things. An item from the merchandise store valued at $5 or less. 
a shout out on every episode and social media post. So here I will say thank you for your continued support, Bjorn, Joan, and Thomas. And you get access to exclusive bonus content featuring local historians, archivists, and museum curators. Everyone who simply donates will receive a shout-out on the next available episode, but you do not get the bonus content and you do not get anything from the merchandise store. Additionally, if you donate on coffee, 1% automatically goes to help fight climate change. Um, My latest Patreon episode was with Lisa Pena of Urban Hikes KC. Um, She's very laid-back, very cool. We had a good conversation. And that episode will be available to general audiences for a limited time this summer. I'm thinking probably July. But if you want to be able to listen to it right away, sign up to be a patron. I do not have any patron content for May, but I have already recorded June's. And, ooh, it's a good one. That will also be limited, um, available to general audiences for a limited time in June. If you cannot support me monetarily, which I totally understand... You can still support me by following, liking, and subscribing to my Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Twitter, and Tumblr pages. Also my YouTube channel. Homegrown KC on all of them. Tell your friends and family about me. Tell your coworkers and your neighbors about me. Have them start listening. And make sure you rate and review me wherever you listen, but especially on Apple Podcasts. You can visit my website for additional information. That's homegrownkc.wordpress.com. And... While you're on my website, sign up for my newsletter. You're not going to get an email every day. No, no, don't worry about that. Once a month, usually the first Saturday of the month, you'll get an email that says, here's what's new, here's what's going on, here's what's coming up. Someday, I'm hoping to do giveaways. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or episode suggestions, you can email me at homegrownkcpodcast at gmail.com. Or DM me on any of my social media networks. I'd love to hear from y'all. For merchandise, go to zazzle.com slash store slash homegrown underscore KC underscore store. That's Z-A-Z-Z-L-E dot com slash store slash homegrown underscore KC underscore store. As always, thank you goes out to my talented sister-in-law, Sarah McCombs, for the creation of my logo. To the Dear Misses for the use of their song Kansas City as the intro and outro music of the show. And to local libraries, which enable me to gather all my research. And thank you to you listeners. Thank you for listening. Cheers. Talk.